Fred, um, would you like to take a seat? Um, I'm going to speak uh, now for a little bit. So we're doing a series on um, Ephesians. Uh, as you may know, we're into chapter 2. And um, this passage, I'm doing the whole of chapter 2. And what I'm planning to do, which may or may not work, is do it in uh, two halves. So I'm going to do the first half first, and the second half second. Wow. Uh, and in between, uh, we're going to take uh, communion. It, if that doesn't work, we'll just do the first half, take communion, and then you'll just have to read the second half by yourselves at home. Because uh, we just might not have enough time. So we'll see how we do. But effectively, this whole chapter is about alienation. The first part, alienation from God. The second part, alienation from one another. Uh, so let's start with alienation from God. Uh, the first three verses of the chapter kind of illustrate the problem. And then the rest of that first section is about the solution. I want to try and strip away some uh, of what is quite loaded language in these first three verses to start with. Some of it's quite unhelpful language because, not because of its original language, but because of how it's been interpreted um, down the ages uh, in not very helpful ways. I want to try and strip that away. So let's just start. We'll go, go throw ourselves into it. Verse 1, here we go. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So, the Bible is very clear that humanity does not work as it's supposed to. Every single one of us is guilty of selfishness and of acting destructively. If, for instance, I listed all the ways in which this week I have, in my self-relatedness, acted in ways that have caused pain and sorrow to people, particularly the people I love most in this world, it would, I think, make for some pretty uncomfortable listening for all of us. Apart from the sadists amongst you who would be going, oh yeah, give it to me, or the people who don't really like me. Oh yeah, tell me, tell me. I have got a list, if you'd like to hear it. Would you like to hear it? Thank you. Uh, but I'm not going to do that. But we all, unfortunately, have this problem. And we all exhibit it, however much we'd like to pretend that we don't. Now, we're not all guilty of the same things, of course, or to the same degree. But in a way that when we look around at ourselves and each other, we can kind of see the family resemblance, the human family resemblance. Now, Paul uses these two words to describe this problem, transgressions, verse 1, which is more of our sort of deliberate and knowing uh, ability to mess things up, our tendency to break things. And then sins, which is more of an inherent uh, imperfection at the heart of things for us. So, the problem is like a double whammy. It's a transgression sins double-double of a burger of problem. It's not just that we are actively involved in messing things up. It's also that we are passively recipients of the messed upness. And let's be clear, as Paul is, verse 3, we've all got the problem. However, as I said, because these two words, transgressions and sins, have been used throughout the centuries and have been misused and carry with them so much baggage, usually because Christians, I've found, have decided to take this sort of thing and distill it into uh, one particular thing. And let's be honest, a lot of Christians are obsessed with sex. 
that's what they really like to talk about, and they've distilled it all into sexual um, issues. Now, the problem with that is it is nowhere near big enough to encompass the actual problem. So for these reasons, I don't really want to talk about sins and transgressions. They are caricatures that are far too narrow to encompass the biblical concept of the problem at the heart of things. There's a very good book, uh, which I recommend to everyone, and which a friend of mine has been reading and then has been um, texting me about incessantly, over and over and over again. It's like, I've read it, it's okay. Anyway, but it's a very good book. It's called Unapologetic, and I recommend it to everyone. It's basically the emotional um, reasons for Christianity. And the term that the author comes up with for the actual biblical concept of sin is this. I'm not going to say the full thing, but it's the human propensity to F things up. The human propensity to F things up. And that's anything and all things. We have this propensity, be that moods, relationships, our own well-being, other people's. This is the problem at the heart of things. Now, of course, this is bad news. And like any bad news, we don't really want to hear about it. No one, I think, came to church thinking, I really hope they talk about sin. I just, I'm so hopeful that that's what they'll talk about. We don't like it. But, however, once we've acknowledged that it exists, we start being true to our real selves. Not the selves that we'd like other people to see or the selves that we would pretend that we actually have, but our real ones. Who we really are. Taking the things that we do and uh, behave and think in wrong ways is part of taking ourselves seriously. If we take that seriously, we take ourselves and everyone else seriously. And what we see is that we're all in the same boat, every single one of us. So Paul is very matter-of-fact about this. And having acknowledged its existence, he also, and we need to, with him, acknowledge the problems that it causes. And this is when we get on to, I think, more uncomfortable ground. If you weren't already uncomfortable... Welcome to more uncomfortable ground. Verse 1, Paul says it causes death. Now, one of the things I hear most often from Christians, particularly Christians who are um, perhaps questioning their faith or who have um, found it difficult to be part of a church as they've grown up, has been this. I'm sure many of you will have said the same things. The thing is, I look around and I see my non-Christian friends, and they seem to be more alive, nicer, and more Christian, i.e. more like Jesus' ethical teaching on how to behave, than my Christian friends. The inference being, you know, so what's the point in being a Christian? A couple of points on this. One, I do not think this is an illusion. I would say that a lot of my non-Christian friends are also nicer and more alive and more Christian than my Christian friends. It's because, guess what? They are. They are. So if your friends are, your non-Christian friends are more Christian than your Christian friends, it's probably because they are. The truth is, lots of people who do not know Jesus are more alive experientially. They are more alive spiritually, relationally, empathetically, ethically, than their Christian counterparts. But second point, this isn't actually what Paul's talking about here. The state of death that he is talking about is only related to spiritual death. 
Now, one, that doesn't mean that he doesn't care about Christians actually displaying some sort of Christian ethics in their lives. In fact, most of the New Testament is all about him going, hey, be who you now are, Jesus-like. And it also doesn't mean that because people are spiritually dead, it, can't, it doesn't mean that they cannot be, in all other ways, much more alive than anyone else. But the point is, people are spiritually dead. The Gentile Hellenistic um, audience to whom Paul is writing were not without gods. In fact, they had lots of gods. They had wine gods and sun gods and war gods and a god with a trident, just as L.A. have lots of gods ourselves. We have our success gods and our fame gods and our money gods and the very difficult, the almost impossible to please god of goop. She or he or it is impossible to please because there's always someone who is living a slightly cleaner life, isn't there? Or in my case, everyone is living a more clean life than me. Um, Hannah was away this week, and this isn't entirely related to her being away, but it's kind of being related, mainly because we have lunch together. But this week, I had in and out for lunch. And by lunch, I mean whatever meal starts at 10.45 in the morning. <laughs> Eat your heart out, goop. Or not, because you're vegan. Anyway, um, where was I? Paul's point is that even if we are fully alive in every aspect, we will always be spiritually dead with these gods because none of them are actually real. And so none of them have the power to deal with the sin problem, which is the starting point from which we become spiritually animated. In fact, Without that, we will never be spiritually animated. So they only offer comfort that is illusory. So it brings spiritual death. And secondly, and here we go into the deepest, darkest, and most uncomfortable waters. Verse 3, it brings wrath. Oh, yes. Verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. God's wrath. Firstly, a quick word about nature. The biblical view of human nature is not that it is entirely corrupt or that it is entirely divine. It is both and. We are both made in the perfect image of the perfect God and also we have marred that image in ourselves and it has also been marred in us because of the time we live, the way the world is and what is actually happening. So it's both and. But it is only the marred aspect of our nature that Paul has in view here. It's only that aspect. And it is that that he says is deserving of wrath. So, back to God's wrath. Now, for understandable, and I think for very laudable reasons, lots of Christians have decided we don't want to talk about this ever at all, thank you very much. Please, let's just leave it and we'll never address it. I think that's a good position to be in. For less laudable reasons, other Christians really, really want to talk about it all the time. Thank you very much. And they take it out of context, and they twist it, and they skew it. And as far as I can tell, they only use it in order to control or to scare people. If you're going to choose one, go for the first. But could I suggest that we try in, let's say, two minutes, 
to chart a course between these two positions and to come through with some sort of thought through theology about this actual quite difficult doctrine. First thing to say, the Bible says that God is love. Nothing but love. Not just loving, it doesn't mean that he can love, but that he is love. He cannot help but be love. Our whole concept of love comes from him because he is love. Secondly, it says that he is slow to anger. And thirdly, we are commanded, more than anything else in the Bible, to not be scared and to not fear. Why that is, we'll come on to in a minute. But we need to hold those three things in tension when we talk about anything to do with God's wrath. Secondly, all the language we use to describe God is inherently flawed. We are using human finite terms gleaned from human finite experiences to describe something infinite and beyond our comprehension. So we need to be careful about putting uh, our understanding of human anger and wrath emotional fly-off-the-handle, I-can't-help-myself, self-indulgent anger onto any description of what God is actually like. It's not going to quite work. Thirdly, I'd suggest that none of us, not one of us, have a problem with the idea of justice. In fact, we, made in God's image, have an inherent sense of justice that is both good and godly. Think of the last time that you watched the news or you read about something that so got under your skin that it made your blood boil. Some sense of huge injustice to the innocent. Maybe something about innocent lives being robbed or damaged or destroyed. Something that made you rise up and go, I cannot believe it, that is not fair. That sense of justice is what God, who is described in the Bible as perfect justice, feels to the nth degree at all times about all aspects of evil and pain and destruction and uh, selfishness. So he literally cannot abide, he cannot be in the presence of anything bad and horrible and evil and wrong. Fourthly, there is this um, pernicious, unbiblical idea that God, God punishes human beings and blames human beings for things that are completely out of their control, such as their inherent selfishness, their inherent sinfulness. This is not biblical. It is uh, at best a sort of throwback to some sort of pagan idea, and it is definitely not the correct or uh, biblical understanding of what God is like. So if you've grown up with this, I would choose to leave this by the wayside in its paganism where it belongs and never pick it up again. Nor does God have some sort of self-indulgent bloodlust and he's just constantly angry and he needs something to direct his anger to because otherwise he can't help himself. I am not much of a parent if when I see something that has got nothing to do with my children that is wrong, I then blame and shout and get angry with them. But equally... 
I would not be much of a parent if I was unmoved if something caused one of my children pain, even if it was self-inflicted. So then, God's wrath is his rightful rejection, his rightful attitude towards, and his rightful response to all instances of us messing things up or of things being messed up. All the destruction that it causes, all the pain that it causes to the objects of his infinite, unconditional compassion, us, his people, and his world. He cannot stand it. He does not like it. Let's, shall we just agree, to get rid of the wrath word, because it's not a very good word, and it's not a very good description, actually, of him. Why don't we replace it with something like his fight against what is wrong for what is right? Because that is a better sense of of his wrath. His fight against what is wrong for what is right. That is what he is feeling. Finally, and this is the most important point, the problem of sin, the problem of death, the problem of God's wrath, all of these issues, they're now moot. Why? Because of Jesus. Here is how the passage continues. If we can have verse 4 up. But, the greatest but of all time, insert your own joke, but, nevertheless, however, despite all of that, but, and yet, because of his great love for us, God, who, rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up in Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to you, to every single one of you in Christ Jesus. God's grace is not the counterbalance to his judgment. This is very important and a point that most people do not understand. His grace is not a counterbalance to his judgment. It's not like he did something loving the other day and now he has to do something full of his justice in order to balance the books because otherwise he's not being true to himself. Unfortunately, that unbiblical idea is something that a lot of people have uh, received and it's not very helpful. And it makes them see God as some sort of schizophrenic who's flitting between being really loving and then being really justful and angry. You could understand why you would not know which God you're going to get and why you would want to spend any time with that God because he might be nice cop, but he also could be bad cop. Did he have his coffee in the morning? Who knows? No wonder people don't feel safe with him. If you do not feel safe with God, it may well be because you think he's a bit schizophrenic. No, and again, no. 
grace is not the other side of the coin to justice. It is honed from a completely different mint, and it is cast from a completely different metal. It is a whole new category altogether. So God remains 100% just and 100% loving, 100% of the time, all of the time, like Sex Panther by Odeon. No, nothing like Sex Panther by Odeon. 100% loving, 100% just, all of the time. And we want him to be and we need him to be. Because a God who is unmoved by injustice is no God at all. And a God who doesn't have unconditional, uncompromising love for every single person in the world is no God at all. So he must be both of those things all of the time. 100% loving and 100% just all the time. But above these things, in a completely different category, superseding them all, rewriting the whole history books, is his grace totally different thing. It is born from his love, and it is born from his justice, but it is of a different category. It's like pizza, burgers, space travel. <laughs> Completely different. That's a terrible analogy that doesn't really work. When Jesus dies on the cross, he covers everything for all time with his extraordinary, amazing mercy and justice and grace. And his grace is greater and more extraordinary than either those other two categories. And means that Paul can say, we are saved, past participle. It's done, it's finished. So we never need to fear. You never need to fear or worry or strain or stress about your loving Father in heaven. It is done. It was done. It has been done. And it is done for you now and forever. So you can enjoy the incomparable riches of God's grace. This is what makes grace so extraordinary. It sets us free. We are seated with him in the heavenly realms. And he's done it for you because he loves you so much. And he's done it for everyone who has ever lived because he loves them so much. All we have to do is just receive it from him. God's settled attitude towards all of humanity is this, yes. Yes, my sons. Yes, my daughters. It's settled. It's finished. It is and can never be taken away. So, let's take communion together. What I suggest we do is we'll sing a song. And during singing this song, I want to ask you to do something. All the feelings that may have come up for you during this talk. Any sense, yeah, band, you can come up. Any sense of shame or guilt 
any sense of not loving yourself, being without pride about your behavior or yourself, any sense in which you think God does not like you, God does not want to look at you, what I want you to do is to try and leave that in your seat as you come up to take communion. And as you receive communion, allow Jesus' words, Jesus' actions to permeate your heart once again. That you are his, not because of anything you've done, but you are his because he loves you so much and because of what he has done. That he wipes the slate clean, though our sin is like scarlet, he makes us as white as snow, and he sets us in a wide open space to enjoy all his love and mercy and goodness, now and forever and ever and ever and ever. This is the beginning of the rest of your life, if you want it to be. If you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian, you can just do this in your heart and mind now. You can sit there and you can say, okay, Jesus, do it for me. I, I need you. Thank you for what you've done. I receive it. Let's stand and let's close our eyes for a second. Lord, thank you for what you've done. And thank you for these gifts. In your name, amen. amen. So in 10 minutes, quickly, the second half, would you like to take a seat? I know you would not want this. Perhaps you would. Uh, so we'll go very quickly, if you don't mind. Um, alienation from uh, one another. Verse 14, verse 11, sorry. Therefore, remember that formerly you are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at the time that you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Alienation from one another. Jews and Gentiles at the time of Paul's writing hated each other. Absolutely hated each other. People in this country, right now, hate each other, as they do around the world. And the Bible knows it well. So, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be exercised by this, we shouldn't be angry about it. I'm not saying that we should retreat into cynicism and just go, oh, that's how the world's always been. But I'm saying that the Bible knows it, and it's the case then as it is now. The world is a hostile place, so how do we fix it? Culture says we need to change our minds. 
Change your beliefs, think differently, and then we will have peace. Culture always looks to educate. Meet the people you despise, change your beliefs about things, see the pain you cause, and obviously this is very, very important. It would be good for all of us to take ourselves out of whatever bubble we are in and place ourselves in a uh, much larger bubble where other people are in it so that we can actually understand what they're like and we might actually become a little bit more tolerant. However, where culture thinks that it's a problem with the mind, the Bible says it's much bigger than that. It's much bigger than just thinking correctly, although that's important. It is an issue of our heart, our whole mind, body, and spirit. It is this, the glorification of distinction. This is the real problem. The attitude in our hearts that says, I am better than you because I am different to you. It is at the heart of every instance of hostility. I am proud that I am not like you. I'm so glad I don't wear those clothes. I am so glad because I'm just so much better than you. I am so glad I don't think how you think. I'm so glad I don't believe what you believe. In the case of the Jews and the Gentiles that Paul's writing to, the Jewish law is what that had become. It wasn't supposed to be. It was a gift from God saying, you're my people, I'm yours, and you are then supposed to be a blessing to the whole of the world. But it had become this thing with which to um, differentiate themselves from everyone else and say, we are better than you because, look, we have the law. There was a famous Pharisaic prayer at the time, which was this. God, I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, a woman, or a dog the glorification of distinction. I am proud that I'm not like you. For us, it's probably more like our qualifications, our intellect, our birthplace, our gender, our skin color, our success, our money. Those are the things that we use to say, I'm so glad I'm not like those other people. And if you can, in any doubt, just bring to mind someone on the other end of the political spectrum to you. What do you feel? I am not talking about the rightness or wrongness of people's beliefs. You may be 100% right in your beliefs. And I'm not talking about inaction or a lack of action. That I wish they would just do it more or do it better. It's not about rightness or wrongness. It's not about inaction or action. It's about our attitude towards people who are different to ourselves. If I think about my difference to other church leaders, I would have various beliefs that are quite different to other people's uh, church, church leaders' beliefs in this town. One of them would be the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. I kind of bang on about that a lot. I'm right. The other one would be about women in leadership. Also right about that. Uh, another one would be probably the technical process of what happens on the cross. Definitely right about that. And also um, uh, about uh, sexual identity and things like that. Definitely right about that. So I'm right about all those things and they're wrong. Now, we could have a massive Barney about that. An, a Barney rubble, trouble argument. Yes, we're getting there. Anyway, we could have a massive Barney about that. I would be right, they would be wrong, and we would fight and fight and fight, and we I would be right, and they would be wrong. Or, or, I could be a Christian. About our beliefs, just quickly. 
maybe some of you will have been told there are non-negotiable things, doctrines, and then there are negotiable ones, right? These ones we're definitely sticking to, and then these ones, they're up for grabs. I don't think that's the right categorization to make because all of our belief about everything is very important. The game for all of us is to become Christ-like in everything that we believe about everything, right? So it's not like, oh, you can have that one about the Holy Spirit if you like, but, you know, the main things are these. It's all important. It's all important, and our job is to become Christ-like. Okay? But what I'm not talking about is rightness and wrongness. I'm talking about the pharisaical attitude. I'm so glad I'm not like you. Or more subtly, I do not understand how you can believe what you believe. Which actually is, I cannot be bothered to understand how you believe what you believe. Because I'm sure I'm better. I just am. This never goes well, and it has no part in God's kingdom. Because, verse 14, he, Jesus, he himself, is our peace. He has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, one. He has destroyed the barrier. All barriers, every single one that stops humanity living in peace together, are destroyed by Jesus on the cross. He's destroyed any need that we feel we need to look down on other people. He's destroyed any sense of superiority that we might have because he, the only one who's actually superior in any meaningful way, has nevertheless made himself nothing so that all of us, whether we are near and close like the Jewish people with their, their, with their law and their history and their temple, or very far off, like the Gentiles, with their depravity and their many gods and their um, secularism. It doesn't matter whether we're near or far. He's brought us all in to be part of not a new group. Jesus does not, on the cross, create a new group. It's not like we had Jews and we had Gentiles who hate each other, and now we have Christians who also hate each other. He doesn't create a new group, despite how Christians behave. We're Christians, we're right, you're wrong. What he does is he creates a whole new humanity. This is what it says. Verse 15. He creates in himself one whole new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Our whole identity is changed as Christians. And so we are no longer our own, but we're his. I'm going to end with this. Uh, there is a TED Talk, which I recommend you have a look at. It's called Why I Left the Westboro Baptist Church, which is a great title. Do you know what the Westboro Baptist title of church is? Everyone knows about that. Okay, and it's by a uh, woman called Megan Phelps Roper. This is how it starts. I was a blue-eyed, chubby-cheeked five-year-old when I joined my family on the picket line for the first time. My mum made me leave my dolls in the minivan. I'd stand on a street corner in the heavy Kansas humidity, surrounded by a few dozen relatives, with my tiny fists clutching a sign that I couldn't read yet. Gays are worthy of death. 
That's how it starts. And the story is then how she talks about um, her next few years joining Twitter in order to get her message of hate across to a wider number of people. But after a while, what happens is this. Twitter users st stop from just hurling abuse back at her and start actually engaging with her in a real, human, loving way. She says this, there was no confusion about our positions, but the line between friend and foe was being blurred. We started to see each other as human beings, and it changed the way we spoke to, other, to one another. And what you see is it's not the arguments that change her mind. It's the love. She knows exactly where she stands. She knows exactly where they stand. But it's the love that actually changes anything for her. This, I believe, is the work of Jesus for all people. That our hearts are the problem and our hearts need to be changed. What happens to her is she extricates herself from Westboro Baptist Church, and she is now happily married to one of the people who started engaging her in conversations on Twitter. Still a Christian. That, as Christians, is our job. To accept who we now are. That there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, there is no male or female, black or white, red or blue, in Christ Jesus, because he has made us all one. All one, a whole new, brand new humanity. That's what he's done, and this is what he continues to do. Verse 17, he came and preached peace. This is post-resurrection. Having destroyed the wall of hostility on the cross, he then preaches peace because we carry on needing it. It's a process which is ongoing. Verse 22, being built, present continuous, together to become a dwelling of God with the Holy Spirit. We cannot force this dwelling on other people. We can't force it on the dirty Republicans, and we can't force it on the dirty liberals, and we can't force it on the dirty husbands or the dirty wives. I've tried. I've tried. It doesn't work. Only Jesus can. He brings it to everyone. We can pray for people. We can pray for people to change their hearts. But what we need to do is embrace it ourselves. Allow him to make you into the dwelling place of his spirit that he wants so that you exude life and justice and goodness and freedom and forgiveness and love to a world that is in desperate need of love and reconciliation. Good? Good. That'll do. Amen.